and welcome to Moonwise, a monthly podcast featuring conversations with women of power. I'm your host, Dorte Sophie Royal, and in this episode, we bring you my conversation with producer and author Joy Donnell. We talk about the power of storytelling and how the spoken word can be an experience of relationship and true reciprocity. Joy shares her unique perspective on creativity, intention setting, and finding the authentic voice within. We also touch on privilege, betrayal, and whose story is getting funded in the media today. As Joy says, it's an important time for people who work with words. Before we begin, I want to share my gratitude for our newest Patreon subscribers. Thank you to Carolyn Greta. Your support truly makes this show possible. If you find value in our episodes and in this community, please consider supporting at patreon.com slash moonwise. Okay, on with our show. Joy Donnell is a producer, author, and strategist who uses media to build legacy. She utilizes luxury media as a form of social justice by highlighting entrepreneurs preserving ancestral skills through artisan couture brands. Her pieces for HuffPost focus on creativity, well-being, and culture. Her streaming limited series with Demand Africa called What If Movie Icons Wore African Fashion showcases the variety that exists within African fashion. Joy speaks internationally about media, parody, self-compassion, and publicity. Her book, Beyond Brand, looks at harnessing one's innate power, inner joy, and media outreach to create a living legacy. Hi, Joy. Thank you so much for joining us on the Moonwise podcast today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Hi, Dorothy. I'm honored to be here. Well, we met as part of a cohort for the 50 Women Can Change the World in Media and Entertainment. So it's really wonderful to get to sit down with you after having gone through this incredible process around women's representation in media and empowerment. It's great to sit down with you and talk one-on-one about some of the things that you're really passionate about and also your process, because during our multi-month process in this cohort, what struck me time and time again was your ability to speak what needs to be said in a room in a way that people can really hear it and really listen. And I've always admired that. And yeah, I'm excited to talk with you today. Thank you. (laughs) That actually, oh my goodness, I got me a little, a little, uh, Shucks, girl. (laughs) I've been following you, of course, on Instagram, do it in public. And your recent post about creativity was something that I wanted to start with. What you said was your creativity is going to come out in one way or another. And if you don't nurture and allow it to develop within your work in art, your hobbies or your growth, then your creative mind will get channeled in the ways you worry and the anxieties that overtake you how you develop disappointing drama field relationships and the convoluted thought mazes you construct to rationalize and justify the fiction you tell yourself about yourself. This was a quote that hit me hard (laughs) in a really good way. And it's one that I also shared and a lot of people responded to it. And I think it really hit home. And it's not something that people talk about a lot when we talk about creativity. So I would love to hear, you know, where that came from and and how you came to this 
the wisdom that you're sharing about creativity? Honestly, it was, you know, life lessons that I learned myself the hard way by not going ahead and allowing my creativity to be channeled the way that was going to be most effective and beneficial for me. And I've always been a storyteller. I've always worked within storytelling through the media that in one way or another, I started on the publicity end and I eventually moved into the the media and actual creation of content end. And I was always working with clients, not just big brands and corporations, but also people, individual people with lots of vulnerabilities, right? And I would uh, have to spend a lot of time with clients going ahead and getting rid of fiction, fictional things that were never going to happen, were in no way in danger of happening, that was just thought going off in the in the mind, right? And through meditation as well, I started to understand the difference between my voice and my thoughts, which, uh, you know, that's always one of those things where you're like, wait, so all these things that I've been thinking, all these things that have been going through my mind, I thought this was kind of like a part of me, but it's not, right? I started to realize that my actual true voice, my inner voice, was a completely different entity. And she always sounded sweet. She spoke very sweetly to me. Uh, She was encouraging in a very particular way those ruminations and the doubts and uh, noise from other people and environment and situations. These were just things that were being played over and over and over again in my mind through thought. And without creativity to kind of help me put my subconscious somewhere, because that seems to be the process for most human beings that I've, ex- I've met throughout my, my life. We have to put our subconscious somewhere at some point, right? The, it, it, we either draw, draw on K-walls or <laughs> we're going to write down in a journal, we're going to paint, we're going to dance, we're going to put it into our cell phones. Our subconscious constantly has to go somewhere creatively. And if we don't use that creative outlet, especially if you feel very strongly that you are a creative being, then it's going to get channeled into spaces and places that are going to keep you from actually growing the way that you want to grow and eventually keep you from actually doing the serious work that you really want to do with this one wild, wonderful life that you have. I love that you speak about the voice and finding the true voice within. And I know for me personally, I've found that I do have quite a few thoughts and sounds that happen in my mind that really, really aren't me. They're things that um, have been programmed in through cultural conditioning, or they've been sort of like the voices of family members or voices of doubt. And that really has been a big step to understand who is me or what is that true inner voice that like you said can be that the sweet and calm and reassuring one and do you have any advice for people on how to to tap into that and or is that the process of meditation for you well the meditation definitely helped me and I I think the, the hardest part or rather the realization that I had to have through meditation was that I wasn't doing it wrong 
like I thought there was a right way to meditate as I started to introduce myself to the process. And uh, I had to go ahead and let those thoughts run wild so that I could actually start to examine them and realize that they weren't actually me, that they were something else. Uh, So I wasn't actually doing it wrong. But I think that there are lots of different ways to meditate. Uh, you know, I've, sub- I've studied a lot of global cultures and I see a lot of meditation in motion as well. So I think a lot of things are meditative. And one thing that I think is meditative is to wake up with gratitude. <laughs> you know, I think that's a very meditative thing to do for yourself to set your intentions before you start interacting with anything, anything digital, before you turn on the TV and you start to find out the news, you know, of the day, what's going on with the traffic, before you look at your phone to see what emails and texts you have, just give yourself that moment of centering and actually ask yourself, what is what is it that you want to accomplish with the day? What is it that you want to actually do? What's your intention for the day? What do you want to step out into the street with that day? Mm-hmm. I think it's also very meditative to take some time to actually talk to yourself about the things that are going to like nurture that part of you that you want to grow. If you have all these thoughts going on in your head that are constantly trying to distract you from the real work, then you need to actually do some things to reaffirm the thoughts that are going to help gear you toward the work. You know, so I say if you can say at least like five things, five things positive to yourself, you know, that can be such a great start. It's so much about inner speak. And that inner speak process is different for everyone. But if you can just start to have conversations with yourself about, first of all, you're grateful, like you're happy to be here. (laughs) You're happy to have this experience. And even though it's not always a cakewalk, sometimes it's a doozy, as we know, you know, from even the cohort that we met in, we we were there to do the work is because of these things that need to, you know, get, get tackled. But you still need to be grateful to be here and grateful for the opportunity and the process and the experiences of this body that you get to use as a bridge. And then to actually take the time to ask yourself, what are your intentions for yourself? What is this work that you want to do? And what are some things that you can say to yourself to reinforce that you are actually worthy of being here and occupying space. Hmm. I'm so glad you brought up intentions uh, because for anyone who's ever seen you speak in public, there's a, a particular, I almost would call it like a frequency that comes through. And I've heard you speak about setting an intention before you speak publicly or even having a specific mantra. And I'd love to hear more about that. I was very resistant to public speaking in the beginning. <laughs> and <laughs> I know, and people are always surprised about that. It was like, cause wow, like you just, you, you flow with it. But I, I actually had a moment, I think as a child where I felt like it was being imposed upon me. Like I wasn't actually being asked if I wanted to speak. People were just shoving me up on stage and sticking a microphone in front of my face. And so I had, I never had time to really process my feelings about it. And so then people started asking me as I actually went, was grown and went out to the world into my career, they were like, oh, you know, will you speak here and speak there? And 
I went ahead and, you know, set out, okay, let's have this webinar. Let's have this, you know, let's have this, this workshop. Let's have this masterclass. And then I actually started to notice a dynamic in the room that I had not paid attention to before as a child, no, nor as I was getting back into public speaking and actually starting to embrace it as a, as something that I wanted to do and should do. And that was the way that words actually create worlds right there in real time while you are sharing story and experience with someone. I knew that it, that it happened on, on page. Like I knew that it happened in writing, in a book or in poetry. I got that in essay. I understood that from my academic background, but I did not have such a profound appreciation for the way that in real time, there seems to be some sort of energy, some sort of transference that comes from the speaker to the listener. That storytelling is actually a two-way street, right? It's not just about the words that are coming out of the, you know, the person's mouth. It's about who is beholding it as well. And I started to have a deeper appreciation for that as a process. So once I realized that that was the situation, I had to ask myself, what was going to actually be my process? And that's where the mantra came from. What did I actually want to use these words to do? What were the kind of worlds that I wanted to build? And how did I want this voice to be channeled? I didn't just want to spew noise at people. I wanted to hopefully share some words that were going to be of benefit to people. And um, that's when I sat down and said, okay, well, if that's the case, what is, where can I start? And the mantra that I started with was that, you know, I want to basically uh, lift. I want to use these words to help people rise into their power, um, get free, you know, and it started to actually happen. I couldn't really explain it. <laughs> like that was the intention that I walked into the room with and people would come up to me free, so unburdened from what they had heard that they were literally crying from the release. It was transformative for me, not just for them, to actually understand that words and voice can do that. That that energy that you walk into the room with, it comes through. That language is so much more than just what we say. It is how we say it, and it is where we're coming from as we say it. And that's not really a mainstream conversation, but we know it to be true deep down. That's why some people are so powerful for us when we are watching them, when we're interacting with them, when we're seeing them on stage. And other people don't resonate with us as deeply because there's some sort of 
opening up that happens to the person who is connecting with us on a powerful level is some sort of vulnerability that they are going ahead and allowing themselves to be open to you and offering something to you. And that is a very vulnerable thing. So their hands are out, spread out wide, not just to give, but also to receive. Wow. Well, I've witnessed this in person and it, and it's so true that there are people who can seemingly say the right things or look the right way or play the role, but the connection is not there. And I, I find even personally, sometimes when I I'm speaking with someone where their energy and their words are not in alignment, I get very confused and it's almost like I can't really hear them because I'm like, wait, this doesn't match. (laughs) And that seems to me a very uh, important, though overlooked um, aspect of human communication, really. You know, I think that it's things that we knew on an ancient scale, right? I mean, when you look at children, And children see someone who is very obviously filled with malintent. The kid knows. It's something in the eyes, you know, it's something in the in the face. It's the way that the words are said. It's not just what is said, it's how it's communicated. And um, you know, I think with all of the push notifications, you know, like in likes and texts and things like that. We have forgotten some things about real-time communication for us as humans. A lot of what is actually conveyed is nonverbal. The bulk of communication for the bulk of our existence has actually been nonverbal communication. And we, I don't know, we, we lost that somewhere along the ways. And I think that, that to some extent, we lost our ability to recognize some things. But if we get quiet and we start to understand more about ourselves, we become more self-aware, I think that we see it again and we start to pick up on it again. And that wisdom kind of comes back to us, that, that embedded wisdom, those things that our gut and our heart was feeling, you know, we start to understand and interpret it better. Well, one thing that you think and speak about a lot is legacy and the idea that we each have the opportunity to leave a cultural legacy behind or even while we're here. And I'm curious where that is living for you right now and if you have any thoughts about legacy around the feminine and the earth right now, as I know a lot of people are feeling a lot of grief around what's happening, I guess, to nature and the feminine around the world. Well, I think that part of the reason why the feminine and the planet is uh, getting so disrespected (laughs) is actually because you can't disrespect the planet unless you disrespect the feminine, right? I mean, if you if you think about so much of what the planet gives us is actually part of the feminine process. And we, of course, there is masculinity within the planet too, but the, the, the bulk of what's being disrespected about the planet is the feminine aspects of the planet. 
the way that it nurtures, <laughs> you know, the the way that the way that it bears and and provides uh, for us, and I think that is definitely linked to cultural legacy. I think that's definitely linked to the stories that we have told and been told. And one of the things that we kind of forget is that for the most part, the stories that we know are the stories that got funded. The stories that we know are the stories that money got put behind. And then once there was a channel for that story, more money and more resources were able to get put into it so that it could continue to thrive and be funded, right? So, you know, the, the Hopi have a proverb that those who tell the stories are the, are the ones that rule the world, right? So... That, I think, is actually one reason why I got so fascinated about cultural legacy. It was probably a combination of, like, Walt Whitman's song and myself, and, like, you, you get to contribute a verse, you know, to, to this. And then I started thinking, well, what is that verse? And then I started to kind of realize it is culture, right? That it's, uh, it's who got celebrated and who seemed to need to be cured, who ended up on buildings, and who ended up buried, in, in the story, who ended up pushed to the margins, and then who got magnified. And that, you know, to be, became very fascinating to me that, you know, there are whole, there are books that we'll never read because they never got published, because that writer was so marginalized that they never got a platform, they never got an opportunity. There are musicians that we'll never know about. There's art that we'll never see. Um, it maybe has even already been destroyed or lost forever in some in some you know junkyard uh, because the stories we know are the stories that got funded. And there's been a very particular storyline that has been funded around the feminine, just like there's been a very particular storyline that has been funded around the planet. Uh, and it's been a disservice to us collectively the way that that has happened. So I look at, I get very excited about social media in a way that I think most people don't. (laughs) (laughs) Because within social media, I see an opportunity for connectivity. If it's used that way, I see an opportunity for connectivity, for call and response, for town halls that span across the globe, you know, and and unite hemispheres. I see opportunity for people to actually start to be aware of the fact that they are not just sitting on their sofa in XYZ town, in XYZ, you know, uh, state alone, because someone all the way around the world is feeling the exact same frustration. Now, the trick is, let's not just keep sitting in sedentary frustration on the sofa. <laughs> let's actually figure out what to do with it. And that means that, you know, we need to use all the technology, I think, that's available to us now on top of everything else to actually spread these stories and begin to even uh, spread stories that haven't been funded as of yet. 
because that's part of what it, this technology allows us to do. So I, you know, I don't know how many of us would have been aware of what's going on in the Amazon right now, for instance, if we didn't have access to the communication channels that we have now through technology. How would that story have played out in media outlets for a lot of people if they didn't have the power to pick, go to their phone and actually go to a different platform that you know doesn't necessarily have the same agenda as a news media conglomerate that's owned by a multinational corporation, you know, and I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. I see, I see a path ahead that is is open to a reclaiming and a course correction through more shared story, more shared experience, more complexity of idea and communication. And uh, we, we don't need, I don't think we need the experts uh, as much as we did to go ahead and get things started now. We can actually go ahead and start things collectively and then the experts will find it. So it's a, it's, I see it as a very exciting time. And even though I know it's painful, the pain is part of the process. If you if you weren't having a reaction right now, if you weren't having a visceral reaction before and you're having one now, well, that's a sign, that's a signal to you that you're maybe being called to do more than what you've been doing, that there's a way that you can actually channel this. And again, to go back to what we talked about in the beginning, how are you going to channel that creativity? Because this wants to come out one way or another. So are you just going to sit on the sofa and feel away and cry and watch the news and be frustrated? Or do you want to actually, I don't know, organize something locally that's going to funnel money into some sort of effort? Do You, you can find it. You can find, I, I mean, we're so lucky now that we can actually go to our phones and find information. I don't want to age myself, but when I first started looking for information, I had to go to the library and use the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> and, and there were times that I had to order a book and I had to wait for the book to arrive to my library so that I could then read the book. And wait, I couldn't even take the book home because it was a reference book from another library. So I had to sit in the library and read the book in the library and take notes by hand. (laughs) 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 Make photocopies and then go home with that and continue to the, you know, go through the process. I did not have Google. You know, and eventually it got email, you know, but there wasn't there wasn't Google. There wasn't email. There weren't message boards. There wasn't social media. There have been, you know, like huge impact makers on the planet. They didn't have social media. We read about them all the time. We lionize them still. We celebrate them. Mother Teresa didn't have social media. (laughs) (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr. didn't have Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So. I I definitely think that that now with the technology that's at hand and the access and the ability to reach out to others, find others who are, if you are very much energized over something, you can find people that you maybe never would have been able to meet, never would have known they existed, never would have known how to get in contact with them. You can reach out blind 
with no introduction other than who you are and, hey, I found you on Twitter or on Instagram and I wanted to reach out and I have this idea and can we collaborate on something? And I think that's very exciting for cultural legacy. Joy, you're speaking directly to my heart and soul right now. I just, I feel everything you're saying. And when you, I I got full body chills when you said, looking at who goes up on the buildings and who gets buried, because that to me is, we're in a moment of, it feels like we're in a moment of reckoning and we're, and many who may have been asleep to what's been happening socially uh, in terms of justice, are waking up to what's been happening for hundreds and possibly thousands of years. And it's not a pretty picture. And at the same time, I appreciate that, you know, there are people like you who are reminding us, like, let's not just sit on the sofa and weep about it. Like, yes, we want to feel the feelings, but let's let's do something and we have the tools to do it. So let's go. <laughs> I didn't always look at emotions this way. I will be the first to admit that for a long time, I did not know how to feel most of my feelings. Um, That wasn't really, I didn't really have space for that. Okay. I grew up in the South and there just wasn't, if I, if I had sat there and I had felt all my feelings, I'm not sure if I would have kept moving. So I had to, I had to be exceptional and I had to do every day and feeling the feelings was possibly going to stop that because my little young mind and bike could not process everything as I'm like starting to get a grip on society <laughs> at large. So the, the feeling of my feelings and the full conversation with the range of my feelings is much more uh, a, a recent, more far more recent in my life, probably more over the past 10 years of my life. So I was already an adult and had even gone through a lot of my career before I started to really um, understand the value of it for myself, right? And the value of it for us collectively. And emotions, I don't know why they get such a bad rep. I mean, emotions need a better publicist, I think, because emotions, emotions are like woven into everything with us. We talk about logic, like a logical decision versus an emotional decision. But if you actually damage the emotion centers of the brain, people lose their ability to make decisions. So if logic and emotion are these like diametrically opposed, completely polar opposite things, why can you not get to the logical decision without the emotional? Because our emotions, our cues is part of our body and our bodies are all that we have to actually process the world in our human journey. Otherwise, we are just mind and intellect and ether going through life. And what are you actually processing? What are you getting? So for us to, you know, I don't know, like downplay our emotions, that's not necessarily the route. Like the, the goal is to actually okay, recognize that you're having this emotional experience. Now, first of all, understand it. Is this just anxiety, you know, and anxiety for no reason? Or is this anxiety that is actually a signal? 
because anxiety can actually be a little awakening to the fact that, hey, something is wrong and requires your attention. Okay, it's like a deer in the wood can be grazing, hear a noise, start to get anxious about it. Okay, you got to process that. Do you run away? Do you stay? Do you keep grazing? What do you do? But the anxiety exists as a cue. And our emotions are always supposed to be cues to us about what we are trying to do, what we need to do, where we are right now, where we're going. So the emotions have value. You don't need to dwell in them. And I do not encourage people to cultivate them in a way that they become stagnated by them. I don't, I'm very much not about, you know, like uh, wallowing. I don't think, I, I don't see a lot of benefit in wallowing in your trauma for too long, past identifying it. You got to start actually doing the work of healing it, or you just stay in survival mode, you know, so Everything has a cue to to part of what your human journey is supposed to be. And I think the, the thing, the real thing, I think, that's happening for a lot of people that is shaking people so much and they're not quite sure what to do with this is that they're realizing that we have widespread betrayal blindness in our society and within us, within ourselves, whether it is within your family, within, well, first it is within you, it is within your family, it is within your community, your neighborhood, within your city, within your state, within your government, within your nation. There is widespread betrayal blindness. And I did not coin the term, Jennifer Freed did. She also coined institutional betrayal. And there is a logic to forgetting betrayal. When you are dependent upon a system, when you are dependent upon a person, when you depend upon something for your very survival, you have to, at some point, reconcile when they are betraying you, when you are seeing the betrayal happen. Either you are going to confront it, blow up everything, suffer the possible repercussions and ramifications that could be huge, that could be actually like the end of everything as you know it, or you have to kind of convince yourself that you do not see the things that you actually know that you see. It is the beginning of how you lie to yourself about what you actually know to be true in the world. And from there, well, any lie is possible, (laughs) right? So a lot of people right now are awakening to the fact that this is not new. This did not start last week or yesterday. This has been baked into everything, every single aspect. And even the people who have been given privilege have been lied to about the source of the privilege and about the the way that the opportunities were able to play out even for them. And all of that trail blindness is what is shaking people right now. Because once you see, once you wake up to What you kind of knew deep down to be true in the first place, but you were trying to deny it so that you could just make it through the week. Now, 
You have your spirit demanding something of you that you don't even know how to navigate or cultivate or get through because it hasn't removed the system that you are dependent upon. The awakening, the realization, the owning up to it now has not nullified the fact that you are still within the system and it is still every day betraying you. So now people are being asked the hard question of, what do we do? How do we heal? How do we rectify this? Where do we go from here? And we don't have a lot of guidance on a, on a broad scale conversation about what to do with all of this. And this is why we're seeing this, I think, manifested in people's bodies. It's coming out in different ways. It's, come, it's just sickness on top of sickness on top of sickness on top of sickness because we learn how to lie to ourselves about we knew to be true about the injustice that we were witnessing right in front of our eyes. Absolutely. And it's really clarifying to hear your perspective on this because I have been wondering why we as humans are so loyal to the things that hurt us the most. And it's just been it's been sitting with me like, why, why are we so loyal? Like, oh, that neighborhood was so hard to grow up and I'm going to like wear the t-shirt of that or my parents hurt me so much, I'm going to be extra loyal. And of course, we have these beautiful hearts and souls where we want to redeem things around us. But when it comes to the systems that are so harmful, it's often, it almost seems like we want our suffering to be worth it. And so we we put on those blinders. I mean, I, I agree with that, definitely, that we want the suffering to mean something. We want it to be, to have, to have had some sort of, I don't know, sublime experience, right? I, I mean, one thing that I always carry with me is my understanding about publicity. And publicity... I, while I really appreciate the lessons that it taught me about human, human conditions, human propensities, just the way that we are, you know, so much of so much surface area in our brains is dedicated to attachment. There's a lot. <laughs> it's a it's a very prominent thing within us. If you look at other species on the planet. They don't stay dependent upon the, the the caretaker system as long as we do, right? We we are the most dependent for the longest. We're also social animals by nature. It's very difficult for us to make it on this planet or anywhere by ourselves, right? We have always needed each other. That's part of why it's such a betrayal to who we fundamentally are to act as if egalitarianism is not what helped us thrive and survive in the first place, right? So I've talked to biological anthropologists and a lot of what we think about how, you know, civilization came, how everything came about, how we actually ended up going from we were barely here to now there's a lot of us has been distorted. Because if we had not actually been working together in an egalitarian way, we were never going to make it. We would have never made it. Because as 
as great as this planet has been to offer us a platform for life, it's still not the most conducive to human life. We, thank goodness, had the intellect and the imagination to figure out how to make it work for us in a way that we could do some things on it and actually be able to thrive. But that started with egalitarianism. It's not one or the other. You, you, need, you need all of it. <laughs> you know, and what we keep bucking up against now is the fact that we know, we're seeing, we need all of it. We need all of it. There's not one aspect of us that's value. Once one sector of us, one group of us that's, you know, valuable and the other is just trash, <laughs> you know, um, it is, there's nothing inherent like that going on. A lot of it has been shaped by environment and story and funding, what got funded and what got starved what got nurtured, what got resources, and what didn't, you know. And there's a lot of logic. There's actually very deep logic to forgetting betrayal when you are dependent upon something. Because if you focus on it too long, you might literally destroy yourself. You're either going to figure out how to stay here and work through it, or you're going to say to yourself, I can't do it anymore. And you're going to figure out how to leave. And I mean, leave your human experience. So it makes a lot of sense, actually. It's actually very human. It's actually, to a large extent, a testament to the brilliance of our, of our minds and our brains and our psyches that we are able to figure out how to compartmentalize some of the deepest, most atrocious abuse and betrayal and still keep going. I mean, that's even what you see when someone it has multiple personalities, right? They've had to fragment their sense of self into different aspects of themselves in order to keep themselves safe. That is a brilliant feat of engineering by the psyche. The mind is willing to do whatever it has to do to try to keep you in the body for as long as possible so that you can experience your human journey through the body. It's actually rather brilliant. <laughs> but if it doesn't get used the right way, it's utter crap. As you talk about reclaiming story and thinking about the stories that got funded, I know that you're working on a number of things to, to change and move forward the way in which stories are told, perhaps on a global scale through entertainment media. And so I want to ask you about your work and what's feeling really alive for you right now. Well, I have been getting busy writing, um, and so I have a, a book that has been a long time coming called Beyond Brand, which is actually talking about kind of the thought processes through uh, the, the, the building of cultural legacy through media, and uh, that will be out in the fall, um, and it's actually built for pre-order now. That's been like a very uh, grueling 
actually a journey even on my end because I have done the, the work uh, for a long time, but haven't necessarily sat down and tried to figure out how to communicate it to anyone else outside of my own mind. And the things that have informed me have been a very weird and wild and strange process. So I've been opening the door to that. Hopefully that will be useful for people. <laughs> and then uh, the other thing that I am working on is the Center for Intersectional Media and Entertainment. We call CME. Uh, so that's the uh, it, C-I-M-E. And I co-founded that with Dr. Nicole Haggard, who is a public intellectual and a professor at Mount St. Mary's University. She teaches in film, media, and social justice department, as well as Monica Lay, who is the executive producer. And um, we met in the same cohort where you and I met during the day. So that has been a, a very lovely process. We basically started talking about th this Diversity and inclusion problem. You know that diversity and inclusion problem that Hollywood has? Just that tiny little issue. <laughs> right, just that little, tiny little, you know, like thing of like, why do you keep missing these marks on, di on diversity and inclusion? And we were like, you know what? We have a dope solution for this. That's actually a multi-pronged effort where we actually pull together resources and insight of a lot of different communities, uh, the different intellectual pockets of society. So that is not not just a one-sided conversation. And we, yes, look at the numbers aspect of things, but we don't rest in just the numbers game of things. We actually move toward empowering the story in a way that it becomes free of the numbers game. And it's actually just able to fully embrace the complexities of the human experience. And uh, within that, we're also you know, very cognizant of community and the next generation of storytellers so that they can have the resources and the pipelines that they need to be able to go into the system that is Hollywood and be able to actually thrive within and to be able to tell their stories with truth and authenticity. Well, it sounds like an incredible effort and I really look forward to following it as it grows. Where can people find more information about that? Our website is cme.us, so c-i-m-e.us, and then we are cme clearly, so c-i-m-e clearly on all platforms. Wonderful. Thank you, Joy. And for those who want to continue to follow your work and get access to your upcoming book, where can we find you online? Do it in public. I am doitinpublic.com and do it in public on all platforms. Uh, so I'm pretty easy to find. If you cannot remember how to spell my name, if you can remember do it in public, you'll find me. Well, thank you so much, Joy. This has been enlightening and I truly appreciate the work you're doing in the world. And if there's any last thoughts you want to leave us with, I, I leave it open to you. I'm just so grateful to have this conversation and, and, I'm so grateful to you, Dorote, for providing platform for this type of thought and exchange, because I think that it's very needed right now. And I think that storytellers are more vital than they've ever been. Uh, and it is an important time for people who work in words, in the world of words. And I just appreciate you.
and your audience. Thank you so much, Joy. Thank you for listening to the show. You can learn more about Joy's work at doitinpublic.com and on all social platforms through Do It In Public. You can hear this month's lunar forecast and other episodes on moontent.co or subscribe to the Moonwise podcast on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Our theme music is by Sophie Cooper from her album, Rewilding. She's sharing brand new offerings over at voicealchemy.com, so go check out her work there. See you next time.